everyone. Welcome back to Looking for the Real God. This is Christy Lynn Wood. Today we're going to talk about the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr, as well as some of my own stories of patriarchy. Patriarchy is definitely a buzzword right now. It gets thrown around and it means a lot of different things. And it's funny because coming from my own experiences with patriarchy, I feel like I'm like, well, there's patriarchy and then there's like real patriarchy. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, we're just going to talk a little bit about some of my stories and um, also just this wonderful book that Beth Allison Barr has recently written and you need to read. Everybody, male, female, it doesn't matter. You all need to read this book because it's amazing. So patriarchy and uh, life in a cult. As I was thinking about this podcast episode, I had this flashback to this moment in time about 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, I spent my spring, summer, and fall, I think I did like four or five of these things, uh, teaching children the seven basic principles while their parents were indoctrinated by my cult leader next door. It's fantastic. Good times. Uh, I loved kids. I absolutely loved working with kids. And one of the things that we could do within Gothard's Advanced Training Institute was to work at these children's institutes, which were basically children's programs that kind of coupled together with his basic seminar. So the basic seminar was like your level one entry into Bill Gothard's cult. (laughs) And lots of people have gone to it. I mean, like many, many evangelicals over the course of years have gone to this basic seminar. It was kind of a big thing for a while there in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of people went to it. So this was like 90s, early 2000s when I was growing up in this cult. And so 2000 and 2001 were my big years of me working at these children's institutes. And it's so funny to me because I look back and I'm like, Why would these normal parents think it was okay to drop their kids off with these young adults who were obviously in a cult? I mean, we all wore the same outfit. It was like navy slacks for boys or skirts for girls, white shirts with buttons and collars. And us girls wore these scarves around our necks and big bows in our hair to draw our attention to people or draw people's attention to our faces. I mean, we all dressed exactly the same. Like, isn't that a little bit weird? I would be like, this is kind of weird, but no one thought it was weird. They left us their children. Some of them were already, you know, homeschooled or in Gothard's movement. And some of them were like legit normal people who just came to the seminar looking for help. So I would spend a week teaching these kids while their parents were usually next door in some big sanctuary somewhere, uh, filling out little blanks in their big red notebook while a small and black haired man flipped through a overhead projector on stage and spoke in this strangely hypnotic sing-song voice while he told you all of his wonderful wisdom that was actually like twisted scripture and straight up lies. So fun times. Anyway, this one time I decided I wanted to do this children's institute in New Jersey. I usually just stayed in Michigan, but for some reason I had it in my head that I was going to travel to New Jersey and I was going to teach this children's institute. So I did. Problem was, I got to the Newark airport, and this is like pre-cell phone, so no cell phones. I get to the Newark airport, and there's no one there to pick me up. Like, I'm at baggage claim, and I'm expecting to see someone else wearing navy and white, 
maybe holding a sign or something like that that would let me know, hey, this is who you are. Nothing. Nothing. Well, this is Newark, New Jersey, and I am 20 years old, and I do not feel safe as this innocent, naive, sheltered 20-year-old to go outside of the Newark airport and look for somebody who's supposed to pick me up. That just seemed super dangerous and sketchy. So I called home on a payphone because, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And I called home on a payphone and I got my brother who was 18. And my parents were gone. There was no way to reach them. They had gone off on some errand or something like that. So he was, so we're like, what do we do? And he's like, I don't know. You could take a taxi. And I was like, yeah, I think I have enough money for a taxi. I know the hotel's address. That's my paperwork. I could do that. I'll do that. And so we come up with this plan. I hail a taxi for the first time in my life in Newark, New Jersey. I get in the back. I take it like it's a 40-minute drive to my hotel. It's crazy. I get there. I'm proud of myself. And the people who were running the seminar, who were kind of in charge of all of us young adults who were teaching the kids, were less than impressed. Apparently, I was supposed to go outside of the airport, unbeknownst to me, no, no communication, go outside the airport, and there was going to be some guy in a big white van that was going to pick me up. Well, I didn't know that. So I thought it was pretty great. The week went on. It was a crazy children's institute. Apparently, everybody there who taught there was like always there. And so there was like kind of this like click thing going on and super hard to get to know anybody. And it was just really awkward. And because I didn't know anybody, I ended up hanging out with these guys, which made it even more awkward because boys and girls aren't supposed to hang out together. It was bad. Anyway, at the end of every week, they would do evaluations for us teachers and teacher assistants. And they would basically walk through all of our behaviors that week and give us like points. And it was really important because if you had like a great evaluation, you might get chosen to be on a team and get to go travel around and lead these children's institutes. Well, my evaluation was less than stellar that week. And one of the things they pointed out to me was that I had an independent spirit. I had an independent spirit. I was independent enough to be able to get a hotel tax or taxi and, you know, get to the hotel. And I really should have called headquarters, they said. I was like, well, I don't have headquarters number, like I don't have a cell phone. I don't have my address book. I don't have headquarters number. Why would I call headquarters? Anyway, independent spirit. So that kind of haunted me. And uh, I figured I probably needed a punishment because of my independent spirit. And so my dad actually took my makeup away for the rest of the summer. And that was pretty traumatizing. But I don't think it was his idea. I think it was my idea that I needed a punishment. And he was like, okay, well, we'll do this. Or I don't even know. Ridiculous. Because I was not needy and gentle and quiet because I had figured out how to save myself, this is a bad thing. It's so funny to me because in some circles that would have been considered like ingenious and like brave and wow, good job just figuring out what to do with that situation. And in my, my group, it was like, you bad woman, you didn't need help from a man. You just figured that out by yourself. Shame on you. And that's just a tip of the iceberg of what I experienced, patriarchy growing up. Like I've said before, my family wasn't quite the same level of women should submit, but it was everywhere, in my church, in my organization, the expectations for what a woman was, the very specific gender roles, how women should act, how they should talk, all of that. And I didn't fit the bill. Like, I pretended, I tried, but I did not fit what a godly woman was supposed to look like because I had opinions and I wasn't wasn't afraid to voice them. And I loved adventure and I was brave and I liked to do crazy things. And 
so many other things that just made me not feel right about being a woman. So moving on in my life, I guess not the only time I've ever experienced patriarchy. So I come out of the cult and I'm living a normal life. I married my wonderfully opposite husband, who is like the opposite of that kind of a man. He has always pushed me to be more than I am. Like, why can't you be stronger? Why can't you have opinions? Why can't you blah, blah, blah? And he's amazing. We totally do this thing together. This marriage is like teamwork and it's awesome and I love it. But we lived in Wyoming for a while after we got married and uh, the culture out there amongst the ranchers that we lived with was unique. Wyoming was actually the first state to allow women to vote, but you wouldn't know it by uh, the attitudes that I experienced out there. I, I worked for a rancher for a while and one of my jobs was like basically to do the cooking and I'm very specifically, there's this one afternoon dinner where I had made this whole huge meal, a roast and potatoes and like a pie, I think. It was this huge meal. And he came in with his buddies and his friends. They were doing something with the cattle that day. I don't know. There was a vet there. There was a bunch of friends that were there. And all these big burly men came and sat down around the table and I served them their big meal of the day. And I remember the one guy looking at the rancher and saying, hey, how do I get one of these for me? And it was like so demeaning and they didn't have a problem just being like totally chauvinistic right there as I'm standing there. And I was like, wow, are you kidding me? And that, that was just like, that was just a little bit. There was this other uh, situation where we were helping with this summer camp. that was kind of like a church run summer camp for three weeks. And I had some ideas for how to make it better, like how to make this work better. I mean, I'd been working in summer camp for five years before this, so I had experience. And I was told that I was so organized, it was nauseating. Yep. And I was like, dude, you haven't even seen organized women back in Michigan. Like, I'm nothing compared to some of these ladies. Like, wow. And we figured out that if my husband gave the suggestions, they would be listened to. So we totally started doing that and said, like, here, you tell him this, that, and the other thing. And he's like, okay. And he would. And then the camp went better. But, like, seriously? Guys, when I look at Christians, I look at the church and this kinds of attitudes are like accepted and like it's supposed to be biblical that women are underneath men and are just automatically less than, that is not okay. And so when I heard about Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood that was coming out, I literally ordered it, pre-ordered it the day I heard of it because I was like, this is what I need. I already have all of these like eh, things about the way that womanhood has been taught, even just in like mainstream evangelical circles. Like I'm not even talking about crazy land. I'm talking about like mainstream church. I'm just hesitant. I just don't agree. And I just struggle with some of the stuff that they're saying and how they're taking it from scripture. And we've talked about this. I think I've had two podcast episodes that I've already talked about this. So I read this book by Beth Allison Barr. And from the first chapter, I was hooked and I was crying as she just shares her story, her experiences, her understanding as a professor of women's history and of church history. And I was like so validated and amazed by this book. I think there's a few things from this book that really just got me. She totally was on board with my idea of like 
This is part of the broken society that we live in because of sin. That's in the curse. The men try to rule over the women. And the women are always fighting back, trying to get back up into this equal position. Like that is part of this broken world. We can't just say, oh, that's biblical. It's it's broken. It's broken. But then as a historian, she went ahead and just talked to us about the history of the church. And there is so much evidence that in the early church, there were women who were serving in leadership alongside men, deacons, apostles, leaders of churches. There's so much historical evidence that has been just pushed under the rug by Christians who are trying to follow a certain interpretation of scripture. But the evidence is there. And that just blew me away. Even into the Middle Ages, there's evidence of these women being people who spoke, who led, who taught. And it was accepted because they were able to look back at the history of the church and say, well, yeah, that's right. This, this did happen. Um, Beth Allison Barr calls it the great cloud of witnesses. All these women who had in the past taught and been respected as deacons and as apostles even. And I was like, wait a minute, what? And she just took us on some history, history of the Roman times, history of the culture with Paul's writing these letters. And it was mind blowing. As I said before, it's so easy for us to read our English translations of the Bible and assume the easiest, most literal interpretation and say, oh, therefore that must be what it is. And when we dig into history and culture, you discover, wow, we're not reading this correctly. We are not reading this correctly. She talked about the problems with like Deborah and the prophetess Huldah. Like, what do we do with these people? God obviously allowed them to be prophetesses, and how does that fit if this narrow interpretation of what women's roles are within the church? And the overarching themes of scripture, where God is constantly just pulling women up and elevating them and putting their names in genealogies and making them be the ones who are the witnesses to his resurrection and going out of his way to talk to a Samaritan woman who has been married for four times and is now living with someone. I mean, he's just constantly elevating women to this place of equality and saying, no, you matter, you matter. I really appreciated Beth Allison Barr's approach to this because she is very much a biblically orthodox historical Christian. Like she's not out there trying to change our interpretations of salvation or of any of the cores of the creeds of our faith. She's just looking at it and saying, this this isn't right. This does not line up with what I know as a historian. And look at the evidence. And I really, really appreciated that. Some of the things that just threw me for a loop, like, okay, the ESV Bible, which is actually the currently one that I use right now, and I'm about ready to get rid of it and find a different translation. She was saying the ESV was was created as a alternative to the NIV that was made, that kind of um, caused, made some gender inclusive language. So rather than saying men and he, they would say like people and stuff like that and trying to make it a little more inclusive. So women were included as well. And apparently there was this huge pushback from that, from the conservative Christians. And so the ESV Bible was created. And so much of it, she's saying, is almost opposite of that, where they're just trying to specifically interpret things in a way that make these roles very clear. But in the Greek, it's not like that. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, I'm so angry right now. But that's broken people. That is broken people. We come with our broken interpretation already in our heads of this is how it is. And so therefore I must look at scripture and make scripture align with what I already believe. 
one of the perfect examples that she talks about a lot is the Apostle Junia in Romans 16. And in Greek, it's supposed to be like Junia, prominent among the apostles. It's a woman. If you look at church history, it's always been a woman. And she was recognized as an apostle. But they don't like that. These English translators who are already very complementarian, women's roles kind of thing, decided it couldn't actually be Junia because she wouldn't be an apostle because it's a female. So they changed it to Junius, one of the apostles. Now it's not even her. Now it's a him. Like, how is that okay? We cannot come at the Bible with our own interpretation and make it say what we want. We need to see what the Bible says and go with it from there. Oh my goodness. Throughout the whole book, Beth weaves her own story of how her husband was actually forced to leave the church where he'd been youth pastoring for like 14 years over this issue of women in leadership because he came to the elders and he said, hey, can we relook at this? Can we rethink this? Can we really just dig in? What does the Bible actually say versus what is just tradition? And they were forced out. And it's so interesting. I, I, I cried through her story because I, I recognized it and I've lived parts of it. And that church hurt. It's hard. It is so hard. And so much of the stuff that causes this church hurt these days and this junk that happens and this spiritual abuse is this misinterpretation of scripture. It's us putting our own ideas, our own religiosity into the Bible that was never intended to be there. Guys, I can't talk about this book enough. I literally, from the moment I picked it up, I started to feel this like call on my heart. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to do something. Like, this is, I don't know, this is this call. And the more I read and the more I read, the call just, just got bigger and bigger. And I still don't know what it means. But I feel like the Holy Spirit is just telling me, like, I have a purpose for you. And you don't have to limit yourself because you're a woman. Like, you can speak the truth. You can speak the things that you love, which, as you know, guys, is the gospel and Jesus and not religion and the fact that God wants a relationship with us and he came to restore us. Like, that is what I love. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, that's okay. And I have a purpose for you and I have a plan for you and I have a vision for what I'm going to do with you. It does not matter that you're a woman. I love that you're a woman and I'm going to use you even though you are a woman. And as I read this book, it was like the last chains of my, I don't know what you want to call it, like being told I can't because I'm a woman. It's like the last chains just like fell off. And the very end of the book, Beth says, go be free. And I felt like that's what happened. Like I finished that book and I was like, I'm going to go be free. I don't have to write a book that has flowers on the cover. And I can speak to mixed groups. And you guys listening to this podcast right now, you can listen to it if you're a man. Like you can listen to my voice and my story and my experiences and, and my discernment and my wisdom because it doesn't matter. We are teammates on this journey. I don't have to be better than men. I don't have to try to prove myself. We can just be equal, equal heirs, co-heirs of the kingdom of God. And we can be free. I'm obsessed, guys. You know I love to just get rid of tradition and and religion. And I just see this as being something that the Holy Spirit just blows up. Like, let's let God be God and let's let whoever is his spokesperson speak for him. That's okay. It doesn't matter. And I'm so excited to see what God does. But guys, this is the last thing I want to say. I know this is kind of long this time. If we just focus on the issues, and if our only focus is like on freeing Christian women and regaining a proper understanding of sex and being people who have justice and we, you know, all that kind of stuff, all the issues we can focus on, 
and we miss salvation and we miss the gospel and we miss the fact that God wants to reconcile the world to himself, then we've failed. We have failed. The issues are not the point. Yes, let's move through these issues so that we can hear God speak from women. That's wonderful. I love it, especially because I am a woman. But the ultimate goal must be reconciling people to God because of Jesus. Like that's the goal. We ha- that has to be the goal. It's the only goal. God came as Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. And now we are his ambassadors of reconciliation. We get to go out there and tell the people the good news. That God wants a relationship with them. And that he made it possible because of Jesus. And that they can be restored and healed. That they can experience love and acceptance and forgiveness and life. And that has to be our ultimate message. Even as we are talking about these other messages that are very important. But that one has to be ultimate. Guys, next week I want to talk to you about uh, critical race theory. And just my perspective on it as somebody who has been in a cult. And things are kind of eerily similar. So we'll talk about that next week. And until then, keep searching. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love to have you join me over on my website at christylindwood.com. For more content, free resources, and opportunities to connect with a community of people who are looking for the real God.